Hello and welcome to another episode of Angel Insights, the show that goes deep into the world of angel investing. I'm Tom Britton, co-founder of Syndicate Room. And if you want more on our flagship Axis EIS fund, head on over to www.syndicateroom.com or follow me at Tom Britton or Syndicate Room at Syndicate Room on Twitter. On today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome Zi Han Wang to the show. Zi, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. How are you doing? Yeah, pretty good. And for those who don't know your background, let's talk about it for a little bit. You studied computer science as an undergraduate. Yep. And then you did a little bit of work before going back and doing a PhD. And your PhD was, as all PhDs are, but quite specific. So it was in patch-based segmentation with spatial context for medical image analysis. Can you dissect that for us? <laughs> That's just the title of my thesis. But generally, I was working in the biomedia, which is a biomedical image analysis group at Imperial College. And a lot of the work students and postdocs and other researchers do there are around implementing machine learning and computer vision methods with medical images. So the idea is that you can use this to help with clinical trials, to come up with new methods for diagnosis and of computer-aided um, intervention and so on. So my particular thing was around this suite of methods called image segmentation, where you're trying to pick out a certain parts of an image. So with medical images, one of the interesting things is that there is a physical relationship between the size of a pixel or a voxel if it's a 3D. And by doing scans, you can actually measure the size of people's organs directly from the scan. Whereas if you do it with a camera, you don't really have that ability to understand pixel scale to real life scale. Now, there was something that I think DeepMind did a little while back using uh, medical imagery and was it cancer diagnosis or spotting cataracts in eyes? Yeah, I don't vaguely remember something like this. But from a technology perspective, was that the area that we're using, how you use imagery for diagnostics purposes in healthcare? Potentially. There's quite a lot of different ways you could use imagery. So sometimes you can use images directly and find things like biomarkers within the images itself. Other times you sort of what I was working on, which is do the segmentation of various organs and you can use that then for prediction or for diagnosis or other things. Nice. And with the degree like that, what was your original plan for <laughs> post-study? I guess I didn't really have much of a plan going in. I did the PhD for the reason that people say you shouldn't do a PhD, which is I was just trying to give myself more time to actually figure out what I wanted to do. And I was pretty lucky to have a PhD advisor that he thought you know, I was good enough to join his group. And he was pretty chilled as PhD advisors go. He was very hands-off, let students discover for themselves like what their interests are in. But that could also be you know, I wasn't part of any existing project. I had separate grant funding, which gave me a bit more freedom to just explore. And then I was interested in entrepreneurship along the way. So that's when coming to the end of my PhD, I joined Entrepreneur First. And then that's, I guess, kicked off the journey towards Magic Pony. Yeah. So we, tell me about Entrepreneurs First, because a lot of people know a bit about it, but it's a venture building program, an accelerator of sorts, but it focuses not on existing ventures, but of pairing potential founders into teams that then create these businesses. What was your experience like and how did the process work? Yeah, particularly at the time when I joined, it was quite unique in that they literally just took people pre-idea, pre-team, and it was more like, let's get a bunch of smart people in a room and then see if they can come up with something together. And I think at the time that idea was like, a lot of people were very dismissive of that approach, but I think it obviously has its merit and can come out with some really successful companies as well. But I think the problem they were really addressing is particularly for countries like the UK, where 
the startup ecosystem hasn't really existed until more recently is that if you do want to start a company, how do you find a co-founder? How do you find someone else to start a company with? And most people you run into are either risk averse on that front. They're more used to, I would just join an existing company, get a stable job and so on. So finding someone else who's willing to make that jump is quite difficult. So they've become the matchmaking system to help connect people up and enable them to start companies. And that's incidentally where I met my co-founder, Rob Bishop, after a while we decided to work together and start Magic Pony, basically. So I want to talk about the name later on, but the idea for Magic Pony and what it actually did, you know, where did that come from? What did it do for those that aren't familiar with your story? What we started originally through EF isn't quite the same as what we came out with, but the company that would have made the headlines that you might have read about is based around using machine learning and computer vision for video compression. So at the time, doing Entrepreneur First, I was keen to see where I can really apply some of my learnings from my PhD towards starting a company, so in particular leveraging new techniques in computer vision and machine learning. And one of the techniques I was really fascinated by was this thing called super resolution, which I think back then was more in the realms of science fiction of how it's used is like very different from what the techniques were actually capable of. But just so happened at that time that we had the deep learning wave come through and this is a new wave of techniques that we're still building on top of which vastly increased the capabilities of our machine learning models i think we were one of the first people to really try do super resolution using deep learning and techniques and then discovering that actually it can massively improve the outcome and the results you can get so the basis for leveraging this technique was really around thinking around video compression so one trend that we were aware of and that's definitely come true is the prevalence of video data on the internet so through services like netflix through other streaming channels i think more than 90 percent of all internet traffic is actually just video traffic and video data is very heavy Heavy. (laughs) yeah in order to keep up with that demand isps and intel telecoms companies are going to have to build more infrastructure but is there a way that we can allow more videos and today without waiting 10 years for new infrastructure to be put in place and super resolution was the way we thought we could do that because if you can transmit video in low resolution and then super resolve it on the other end. So in effect, lower resolution videos is going to take less bandwidth than a higher resolution video, but obviously it's going to be lower quality. But the act of super resolution will add in missing pixels or try to interpolate these pixels, restore it in some way. So the idea of super resolution with compression without actually even touching the codec. So you can transmit using existing video codecs, which we knew were a patent minefield as well, that we didn't really want to go into video codecs because that's quite a trolly territory for IP trolls as well. Just wrap around how video was transmitted. And so you would allow video that was of a lower quality to be rendered at the end users and at a higher quality by filling in pixels and effectively making it a higher resolution from the underlying compressed file that was lower resolution. Yeah, that was the main idea. Send in low resolution and then we apply some machine learning on the client end to make it look better than how it was sent. That's cool. You somehow came up with the name Magic Pony. Where does that name come from? <laughs> yeah, there's two aspects to this. One is Matt Clifford, the CEO of Entrepreneur First, I used to give this talk to all the startups about how you should not build a Magic Pony, which is this thing that people want but doesn't exist or can't be real. And then at the same time, some of the ideas we were initially pitching to potential customers, people just didn't believe that we could do them through computer vision. Obviously, we hadn't proved it out, but we had a hunch of how they could work just because we've done the research and understood how that technology could work. 
So it was vindictive then. It was yeah, vindictive. So, <laughs> like, oh. Either way, because people didn't believe what we're doing. Either way, either we're a success or failure, would be a magic pony. So yeah, <laughs> that's kind of how, how it's stuck. Even now, most AI and machine learning companies have very similar types of names. So Magic Pony actually tends to stand out amongst all these other machine learning startups at the time, like Something Mind or Deep Something and so on. So it's like, okay, we're different. We're not the same as the others. <laughs> I get that. Definitely. Yeah, within two years, you sold the business to Twitter. I don't want to delve too much into the details of the deal, but I presume that the acquisition was for the technology that they would then apply to their networks because obviously Twitter sends a lot of video and GIFs and things like that. So they were thinking, well, how do we speed up the site and keep it interesting? I think people would tune out of Twitter if you had to click on a video and then it was like loading. <laughs> so they clearly saw the potential in the business. Quickly though, run me through, how did the acquisition come about? Did they approach you saying, oh, we've seen what you're doing. This is great. Yeah, it happened quite quickly. And one thing we found when we were pitching Magic Pony to potential customers, because we were at the stage when we were still figuring out what the product would actually look like and how does it fit into the ecosystem. So we essentially could say like we found a technical solution to a problem, but we hadn't packaged it up into a scalable product at that point yeah so a lot of the people we're talking to were straight away go we'd like to acquire you we don't want to wait for the product we weren't in need of acquisition since we just raised our seed round so it was okay let's try and keep the conversation going and then we'll come back to that later and part of it was we can do more business development with these customers to understand what their needs were when it came to video processing and where they would see the most benefits with twitter it was actually whilst we were at a emerging company summit. So this is part of this annual conference that NVIDIA runs. And basically they invite a lot of early stage companies or startups to this summit where they can showcase how new companies are leveraging GPUs for their product use cases and so on. So we were showcasing our stuff there. We had super resolution running live on a number of devices all leveraging the gpus and then somebody from twitter saw our booth they were super interested in what we're doing and from there they just went straight to jack dorsey you know, we weren't looking for an acquisition but we were debating around what is the fastest way for us to get to impact with the technology that we developed and so we saw Twitter was basically a path towards that. Obviously, there's other companies we could have spoken to and made deals with. But at the time, we felt like Twitter was trying to do right with the sphere that they worked in. And even today, I would say there's a lot of people trying to do right with Twitter, even though that can lead to mistakes and that can sometimes result in controversies. But compared to some other tech giants, we felt there was maybe a, a better bet or someone we perhaps support better. That's eventually how we agreed to the Twitter acquisition. Fantastic. Okay, so you got acquired by Twitter. They consumed the technology and you got to develop it, but you also got to be a part of this much bigger tech organization and you ended up staying there for five years. What was it like working for Twitter? Was it what you would expect? Fast pace, lots of challenges, break walls, fix things later on, all the cliches? Maybe not quite. On the inside, it's not the same as what you might see on the outside. You know, I actually used to joke that we went from a small loss-making startup to a much, much bigger loss-making company. <laughs> Twitter started to become profitable and turn things around. But Twitter as a whole, as, a, as an organization, it still has a lot of challenges, it still has challenges around revenues, challenges around technology they're developing, as well as organizational and people management challenges too. So we would have thought they would move faster given how quick they made the acquisition. But internally, there was just a lot of baggage that they're carrying that's slowing things down. 
And there's a cultural attitude which can be difficult to change in terms of like how they expect process to be run and how things work. And Twitter was somewhat new in understanding how to leverage like remote offices. Most of our team were based in London, whilst San Francisco was the headquarters. And they were trying to break away from that. But ultimately, it's quite hard to have completely distributed decision making. At some point, you need to sync with the stakeholders. And for us being like eight hours away, it can be challenging to have to like, oh, we're stuck on something. We can't move forward, but we have to wait eight hours for San Francisco to wake up. So yeah, that has obviously added some of the challenges towards that. And so I definitely learned a lot from my time at the company. And I'm grateful for being able to experience some of these things as well. And it seems like it was a good five years. You worked your way up to head of Cortex Applied Research. Very fancy title. And then you decided to leave and pursue some other things. So at some point along that journey, you're going from entrepreneur and working with this tech company, you decided that you wanted to get into angel investing. Tell me, what was that process like? Was it something that you always wanted to do? Or was there a moment where kind of clicked and you said, you know what, I want to get involved with that? I've actually been somewhat involved with angel investing since the acquisition. So whilst I was at Twitter, but it was just very passive like people basically be like hey look at these guys what do you think about this and i think in many cases they've heard of magic pony they know i'm somebody who works machine learning i could potentially help in either advising these startups or providing different perspective or investors like to hear from other investors when it comes to making an investment decision so i can provide some more of that technical experience on, on some of these deals so i've been doing like one or two little investments each year along the way and then it's coming towards the end of my time at twitter i decided you know, maybe i should ramp this up a little bit more see if there's more people particularly in the uk startup ecosystem i could help out and i think for startup ecosystems anywhere in the world you kind of need previous exit founders to reinvest back into the system to sustain it and keep it going and help it flourish so i felt like part of that is also me playing that role it's not just the money the investing side of it you alluded to it before it's from learning or sharing from the experiences that you've had building up a business selling that business to a big tech company and what you've learned at that big tech company if i had to ask you for one or two of the biggest takeaways from your experience building up magic pony and selling it to twitter that you impart on these companies that you're then investing in what would you say those were almost every company i have worked with is somewhat unique in what they're doing i think one thing that i have to remind people particularly those first-time founders that is that there is no magic formula that you can follow and then you achieve success right you can't just redo what we did at magic pony and somehow expect that to be successful every case is unique and circumstantial so what i try to do is help people talk through their particular circumstances and raise questions that maybe they wouldn't get that perspective otherwise. So I think a lot of it is just bringing a different, more experienced perspective to stage that particularly for first-time founders that may have not experienced that and wouldn't know what are the right questions to ask in their state. So it's often the case, it's the unknown unknowns that get people. People always want to do their best, but how do they know if this is the best they can do? Or how do they know they're targeting the right things? So having an outside perspective is always important for that. So I just want to delve into that for a second because asking the right questions or at least asking questions as opposed to, you know, just go with it. Do you think some of that falls back to your scientific training? Because you obviously have this hypothesis-driven approach to things. You, in your PhD, you were constantly testing new ways of imaging. Even coming to the idea of Magic Pony, it was a theory. We think that we can use this to make video imaging work better. So you obviously had this idea that you could prove super resolution worked. 
you weren't saying, oh, we're going to build a better video image processing thing. You were saying, I'm going to prove that this theory works. So do you think it's that background and hypothesis testing way and the scientific method that make you question so many things and tackle them in the approach that you do? Or have I read into that too much? Maybe a little. You might have read it just <laughs> a little bit too much. But it's still a very important thing for not just startups, for any company. For you know, If you're a product manager within a large organization, you still have to be testing your hypothesis. You don't want to make assumptions that then turn out to be false, right? You want to check those assumptions as soon as you can. Maybe some of that is through my scientific background, but also this is a large part of what is instilled in, in, in I think, a lot of startup cultures. And I think Entrepreneur First has talked about this is how do you fail as fast as possible? So you really need to test your hypothesis to the point of failure to know that actually, is this going to stand up or is this going to fail? In which case you should move on to something else because you have a time limited window in order to come up with an idea. So within, I think it's like 12 weeks, you need to find a partner, work with them as much as possible, test that working relationship and the product idea or the business idea as quickly as possible. And if you want to do it quickly, then you should test it as critically as soon as you can so that if it's going to work or not rather than just wasting the whole 12 weeks and then finding it right at the end oh it's not going to work right do you work in absolutes on that question though you're like it might work or no it will work (laughs) like how do you define this is good enough for us to carry forward yeah i think you have to take a bit of an iterative step in many cases you can think in terms of mvps you can think in terms of cycles and iterations for development each time you test what you can test to the next stage and that helps inform you do you continue down the path or should you do something else it's the same for when it comes to r&d in many organizations you don't just throw all your money behind the first idea that sounds good you fund it a little bit see it through to the next milestone see if that's still promising because ultimately when it comes to testing unknowns it's an unknown you don't know if it's going to work or not until you test it even things that sound really good and sound like this should work don't always work in practice theory doesn't always translate to practice basically one other thing i learned from that experience is that you should not judge people based on whether you've come across the name before or not so if i look back on myself at that time we were very much unknown and in fact many investors would pass on us because they were like who are these guys they're young they've never done this before so i think one thing i've learned is not to just purely based on oh here's a history of successes because that doesn't always mean that we'll be successful in the future in the same way as that just because someone doesn't have a history doesn't mean they're not going to be successful in the future either. I see this bias play out in the startup investment world, like entrepreneurs that had made a name for them or have some level of success tend to raise much bigger rounds and so on, but don't necessarily mean they're They may improve the odds, but not compared to the differences in the funding between the unknowns and the knowns, or at least I don't think that's always justified. There's an interesting trend recently as well. So if you're a famous machine learning researcher and you decide, I'm going to start my own machine learning startup, you can almost instantly raise a fund from you know, one of these VCs that follow these trends just because you're in the know in that field. But I would say if they applied that approach to us, that wouldn't have worked because we were not in the known in this field. Like nobody, like my PhD background wasn't really pushing the frontiers of machine learning. It was like very focused on something else. So I think there's a lot of people who have the right talent and capabilities who haven't shown their potential yet. And I think they're often overlooked by others. And that leads us on to the right founding team and the right hires. 
because you don't have to have a name, but what is it then if they don't have a name or you know, the specific level of research that you look for in the startups you're investing in? Yeah, so I think a lot of it comes down to the motivation. So is this a problem space that really motivated to be working in? I think one irony with somebody who has become a bit more famous is that they just have too many options for where they could you know, invest their time. So they don't necessarily always have that focus. And then because they have the option, it's hard to judge which of these options are the ones that you know, they're really passionate about and really want to be pursuing and investing their time about. Whereas I think for some of the people new to this space, it's almost like they have something they want to prove about themselves. So they've chosen this field for a reason. They feel like they can make a difference. They're going to go at it. And yeah, so I think really doubt comes down to the people, whether they believe in that space they're operating and whether they're motivated to be solving problems in that space or whether they're more of the mercenary types that kind of, oh yeah, we can maybe make a quick buck here and then we'll go do something else. So I think it's important split between those type of personalities. And when it comes to you're working for a startup, you founded a startup, you're hiring people, and you're obviously looking for this incredible talent. Any advice to the founders out there who are trying to compete with the likes of Google and Twitter and all these <laughs> massive companies that can afford huge salaries? How should they go about securing that talent when they can't offer the same package? Yeah, this is a common question and concern. And I really reflect on our experience as Magic Pony. We hired this team of PhDs who, because it was relatively unknown, they couldn't just walk into a job offer at Google as easily as if they were sort of somebody who had made a name for themselves in that field. But I think one thing that I looked for in hiring these people was that were they really interested in the problem that we're trying to solve? Were they motivated to work on this and push the frontiers on this front? Well, you want to hire people that believe in the company so would value the potential upside much more than the, the base salary that you'd get. Because I think if you try to compete on base salary, it just doesn't work, at least on early stage companies, until you establish your profile, your brand, and have a source of revenue or funding. But for us, like we had none of this in the beginning. So the people that were hired were people that were looking to really apply their skills to something that motivated them, that they found interesting and inspiring as a, a problem space to work on. And for them, that mattered more than oh, I want to walk into a six-figure salary straight away from my PhD. And I think for many people that are talented, they can walk into that role anytime, really. But doing a startup is a passing opportunity that you can miss very easily. And it's not going to always be there to the first few to join a startup. The founding team always has, in some ways, higher prestige than those that join when the company is much more established. You take more risk, but you also get more potential upside from that experience as well. No, definitely. You've got a few investments under your belt now, and I'm sure you've done a few retrospectives on them <laughs> and how they're going. What are some of the lessons that you've learned from those earlier investments and how have they adjusted how you approach a new company you might invest in? Yeah, I think I'm still figuring things out. I wouldn't say I'm that particularly seasoned, particularly compared to some of the other angel investors in this space. I do think I've learned quite a lot in terms of how people approach different problems and how they go about validating their hypothesis. I think it's interesting to see from the pitch decks how far people go towards that validation and how they present that to investors. There are those that basically give you the claims without much substantiation and then there are those who do a bit more rigorous work behind the scenes as well. I think that can sometimes be difficult to tell apart and I think it, having a bit more experience helps with that. I would say in the very beginning I wasn't 
perhaps doing the same level of rigor when it comes to doing investments. But I think even to this day, I'm still not as rigorous, say, as a VC fund. When you're investing someone else's money, it's different to when you invest in your own money, I would say. So I think there's still a lot where I'm really basing it on gut instinct and based on the hunch and my interactions with the founders, whether I see that they're motivated by the problems. I've only had two failure cases so far. They're both well invested in people I know, friends. Not to say like it's a bad idea to invest in friends, but I think it's because I maybe was a bit blindsided. To, I was like, oh, I'll help a friend out. You know, I didn't really look into their business model, their approach as deeply. If I was looking at them as a complete stranger, maybe I wouldn't have not made that investment. So it's a good one to be aware of biases that you might have making these investments. Nice. And if we can shift slightly to focusing in on machine learning and AI in general and potential investments in the space, you know, it's been seven-ish years since you founded Magic Pony. Just how far has the industry come since that time? Yeah, there's several trends in this. I think one is the commoditization of machine learning as a whole. So I would say, particularly when we were starting it, it was really down to a very select few that had the knowledge and the know-how to actually do anything substantial with machine learning. And within industry, you tend to have more like data scientists who weren't necessarily researchers. And you you could argue that machine learning is really just applied statistics at the end of the day. But I think part of that is how do you scale up these algorithms? And I think that's what deep learning has really enabled is that you can scale up how you apply machine learning methods to a vast quantity of data. So in some ways, I think we've actually just really entered the big data age. You know, we were there before, but the fruits of that big data outcomes haven't really been seen to the same state as we've seen more more recently. So I think you know, there's been quite big leaps in terms of how we do, particularly natural language processing, which has given some very impressive results. I think people have seen things like DALI, where they do text to image generation as well. It's very impressive. But also for some of these areas, it's quite subjective in terms of how you assess the quality of the outcomes there isn't a objective metric to say this is a good generation of an image and this is a bad generation particularly when it's something that's like very arty so in some of these areas it's of interesting sort of how we quantify progress in the future uh, as well but definitely there's been a lot of changes in this space and think yeah the commoditization of machine learning through open sourcing models through open sourcing code and then advances within the hardware that we build on as well. So we have a more powerful GPUs that basically enable you to run much bigger models and train much faster and so on. So really building off our ability to handle vast amounts of data and process that and derive learnings and statistics from it. While the techniques and the hardware has advanced a lot, one thing that's fundamental to the training of these models is that underlying data. And you kind of mentioned it before, like learning to avoid biases in your investment behavior, applying that to machine learning. How do we remove the biases from the models that get generated? Because something I'm seeing a lot in the news is we've got this great thing that can replace judges because we've trained it on all the old court cases. But all of those judges then have inherent biases and you're training a machine that then replicates those biases. Is there any way that you can remove these biases from the models that gets trained? This is an open area of research when it comes to fairness in machine learning. There's a lot of concerns, definitely a lot of moral and ethical concerns. Fundamentally, the way that you would do it today within industry is that you have to have a team of humans that vet the outcomes of the models. At the minimum, you should have a reporting process where people can report dodgy behavior from the outcomes of these models and then be able to feed that back into training and adjust the outcomes. There's been some hilarious failure cases. I remember when Microsoft released their chatbot on Twitter where they just learned of text from the internet 
not thinking that actually there's a lot of profanity and it's just captured it all. You can very easily trick the chatbot to spew out these comments which are inappropriate. But yeah, it's something that I think people have to sort of really keep an eye on. You cannot assume anything is perfect in this space. Everything's still evolving and changing as people learn more about how do you manage these processes? How do you manage biases in this way? But then I think you have to remember the humans vetting also have biases too. Can we ever be free from human bias? I think that's maybe a tough question to answer as well. No, it is. And we've seen with the likes of Google and certain firings that have taken place at Google where occasionally, well, we don't know exactly what's happened, but the people who are trying to police the algorithms, when they do raise a flag and say, actually, something's not exactly like you say it is, they get called out on it by their companies and let go, if I'm interpreting that correctly. How do you think going forward, though, is there a way to self-police? Or is it possible at some point in time that the algorithms know when something is biased or not? Or will they always be tied to the data that they have? I think this is the next frontier for AI research, which is really how do you bring reasoning into the algorithms rather than let's build models that can replicate the data it's seen and interpret that in as it is. Then you have a system that can reason about what it's seen and give you an answer based on following logic, right? Historically, AI, uh, at least like from the 80s and 90s, perhaps, were more along this thought of like logic and reasoning based approaches. It's only the wave of, oh, let's apply loads of data, really leveraging big data came about that we switched over to this way of thinking about machine learning, which is learning from just vast quantity of data. But then, as you mentioned, it's very evident, you also ingest all the biases with that data too. Once we get to that point where we have models that don't need fast quantities of data, but can reason about the data they've seen and have some set of logical constraints about how it produces its predictions and answers, then that helps you know, maybe remove some of these biases or at least allows you to see where biases come up in a more systematic and, and logical way and allow you to tackle that. Do you see that as the exciting trend for the future of going back to that and expanding it? I think it's definitely one of the trends that's happening and that's quite uh, interesting because you know, I think that may be the path that's more likely to take us towards AGI. I mean, I think general intelligence is still quite far off despite you know, what you've seen in the movies and so on. But I think part of it is if you can't rationalize about the experiences, then you know, how do you get to generativity in terms of you know, how you make predictions and so on? I think to a large extent, I would say models that we've trained to date are really closed in the, in the sense that they can't extrapolate from what they're seeing to really far unknown instances. It's always based within that Oh, you know, that set of data sets they've seen. So when you have different data sets, it can really skew the results that come about, particularly within production machine learning models, where like you've suddenly got a data that's come in and your model has only been trained with these images and then you're going to get a bunch of failure cases. So I think we haven't got to the point where we go from you know, one set of data to then extrapolate beyond that to really far unseen data. The other thing I would separate is maybe how you define general intelligence. You know, one thing that's come up in the news was the Google engineer that thought the system that he was interacting was with alive, was alive yeah. <laughs> conscious because he prompted the system with questions that made it say yes i am conscious or i am a living machine or something like this but i think it's partly because the systems the way that we trained them are set up to respond in such a way because that's what the data basically has told it to do not that it really knows what it's saying or how to extrapolate from what it's learned even if it did get to that point where it can really understand the patterns that it's learned 
that still doesn't necessarily mean it's generally intelligent or conscious. I think that's still maybe perhaps somewhat ill-defined as what is what is that. I think we still have to understand that about ourselves in some ways as well. What is consciousness? Where do you stop from humans to animals and plants and so on? I'm going to still call you the philosopher from now on. <laughs> Nothing is quite as black and white as people would like to make it out to be. Agreed. I think we could talk about that for days, to be honest. <laughs> but I want to I want to switch to focus on you a little bit more. And you know, you've been on this incredible journey. You, know, you studied PhD, a few jobs here and there, but from PhD to entrepreneur first, to business, to Twitter, to taking a break. You know, we know that you're angel investing, but what else are you doing with your time these days? I'm curious. I'm playing with a few ideas of what. I might do for a future startup. I think I still haven't found that problem that makes sense for me to solve. Part of what I'm debating or considering and want to come across new ideas now is whether I'm the right person to be tackling these problems or whether it would actually be more impactful if I invest in others who maybe have more experience or expertise in these areas. It's a new position for me to be in, whereas previously would never have had this power to make that choice of do I do it myself or invest in others to do this. It's a maturity. Maturity, <laughs> that's what we'll call it. I might not be the right person for this, but I can invest in the person who is. I like that. Yeah, I think part of it is getting to grips with where my own ego is. Maybe the ego is playing me versus where it actually is like a reasonable thing for me to do as well. And I... You have been reading the philosophy books. <laughs> <laughs> the thing we see a lot with successful entrepreneurs, particularly you know, the ones that make the headlines, they tend to be quite big on ego they tend to be low on humility and i don't necessarily think that's a good approach at least it's not a sustainable approach so i think one thing that i think about is really so what can i do that is sustainable in terms of how i tackle these problems about climate change issues as well that's one space where i'm mostly thinking that it's better for me to invest in others that know this space better that have more ideas of solutions rather than me trying to reinvent the wheel and come up with things from scratch. And I think we have to accept our own limitations as well, understand our own strengths and weaknesses. I know, though, for a fact that you're also into rock climbing. You've made some very tech-focused investments, <laughs> but you've also shared on Twitter, invested in a rock climbing gym. So how did that come about? I guess one of the things I joke about is that oh, maybe I'll just start a climbing gym after I <laughs> finish at Twitter and I have a few friends in climbing, some of them much more serious about climbing than I am, and those that may be in the know of sort of existing climbing gym operators and owners. And uh, through one of these friends, I basically got intro to someone who used to be running BlockFit, and they wanted to do their own climbing gym. So they had someone that has an experience, and I thought, you know what, maybe this is a good chance to back someone else, in the, particularly in the area where I'm somewhat passionate and really interested in climbing and I do a lot of climbing. I'm not particularly good, but enjoy <laughs> this as a hobby. And I think it's a really cool sport that has been gaining traction over the years as well. I think during the Olympics, I think the climbing was one of the most watched events as well. So it was amazing. It was yeah. amazing to watch them. You know, the speed climbing in particular was like... Uh, yeah, definitely. So I think it's, it's one of these things that a lot of people probably would never have had access to until they've moved to a city or they live right next to some climbing places and most people are not necessarily in either of these circumstances. It's not something people generally will be able to do in school because most schools do not just have climbing walls that your kids can do and so it tends to be something that at least from what I see either you know, people's parents are into it so they get the kids into it or they start it once they go to university and they move to a city that has like climbing gyms and they want to try it out 
and so on. So yeah, I think there's definitely an interesting trend for more people to be climbing, particularly in London, that really expanded as well. And so it feels like could be a business opportunity or maybe it's just going to be a hobby opportunity. So the climbing gym I invest in is called Rise Climbing. They're based in East London and near Canning Town. And something that I found quite interesting was in the States, there's a few gyms that are like co-working spaces as well. So you can go and work and boulder in between meetings and such. And oh, I need that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Any founders out there who need an idea? <laughs> I think a lot of gyms are taking that approach and it fits within the digital nomad lifestyle and so on for people that maybe travel between cities and yeah, get to go climbing, have some place they can work from as well. And all of them also have cafes and you get some food after climbing too. So it fits in quite well. Oh, nice. We've covered a lot of subjects. We've covered AI, machine learning. You've brought up climate tech, rock climbing. Let's play a little game right now. So 20 years down the line, you take a look back on all you've achieved, 30 years if you want to go further out. What is it that you'd like to look back and be your legacy? Hopefully it will be more than just Magic Pony. When people ask, what do you want to be when you grow up? I tend to fantasize more about being an inventor rather than being an astronaut or being a policeman or something like this. I think for me, it's the process of innovation and inventing new things I find most interesting and fascinating. And perhaps that's why I thought doing research will be interesting as well. So I hope in 20 years' time, I'm, maybe I'll be known for maybe a couple of inventions that actually you know, have an impact in the world as well. We'll see if that gets to that point. Or at least one thing I'm realizing is that I can really enable others to do good work learning from my time at twitter being a people manager you're not the one that's the mvp of the team you're the one that enables mvps to come about and for others to achieve great things so i think if i can't do it myself i enable others to be able to invent and come up with wonderful inventions i like that <laughs> I like that a lot. I should switch it though. You don't want to be known to be the guy that proved Matt Clifford wrong about <laughs> Magic Ponies, not the Magic Pony guy. I mean, this has been fantastic. People that want to see what you're up to, where can they follow you? Yeah, I'm still on Twitter. You can follow me at Sihan Wang and obviously LinkedIn. And yeah, I think these are probably the best places. I don't tweet that much. I tweet a lot of random things actually. But every now and again, I'll tweet something that people will find interesting. Quality over quantity of tweet. <laughs> Definitely the way to go. But no, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And it's been a pleasure to chat about these things as well. Cheers. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode of Angel Insights. And if you'd like to stay in the loop, please do register at www.syndicateroom.com or follow me at Tom Britton or at Syndicate Room on Twitter. And be sure to tune in in a few weeks time for our next episode. It's going to be a good one. Bye.